All right, everybody, it's time for us to get started tonight. We did not get to finish Daniel chapter 4 last week, so we will finish that this week. Open up now to Daniel 4. We're going to be in verse 32. Which that's where we left off, and we'll just cover that one again. Daniel 4, verse 32. <clears throat> so as you're turning there, just a quick refresher what Daniel 4 is all about. It's I redrew the chart to make it a little easier to remember. Daniel 4, as you can see, here's your 1 through 12. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. But there's rings. So the outer ring is about exile. Slightly more inner ring are prophecies of the kingdom. Inner more than that. Uh, just accounts of God delivering his people from uh, death. And then there in the middle, the core, the bullseye, the theme, the thesis. What's this whole book about? It is about how God rules in the kingdom of men. And that is, in my opinion, that's the way to look at the book of Daniel. Uh, it's, it's, it's about, you're in exile, but a kingdom of yours is coming, the Messiah's kingdom, in which case God will deliver you from the kingdom that you're in, and he'll do that because he rules. That's the whole point that he's building to. It's like a pyramid, and that's the capstone, chapters 4 and 5. So, chapter 4, God rules in the kingdoms of men. Now, again, I say that, that this is your outline, but the gap between 4 and 5 is a humongous gap of decades. It's not like... Five follows four, it's part of the same theme, so it comes right after. No, we're not going to study five for several weeks. After we finish four, we're going to go to chapter seven, because we're going to do this chronologically. I don't know why, we're just shooting the breeze, we're just having fun here, but that's what we're going to do. But I want you to see, you know, the, the rings and how it forms. But here in the bullseye is where we are, chapter four, God is over all the kingdoms of men. So kingdoms rise and fall by his decree and by his will. And you see that play out here in this text. Nebuchadnezzar is given a prophecy, much like he was in chapter two. He's given a prophecy that he doesn't understand, so he calls his wise men to come interpret it. They can't. He brings in Daniel, and Daniel has given him the interpretation, which basically boils down to um, you represent this big giant tree whose shade is over the whole earth, and the fruit that you provide nourishes all the animals, and your branches you know, provide homes for all the birds, and, and so forth and so on. It's just, it's just the best tree in the world until an angel comes down and orders it chopped down, cut down, um, neutered, or stunted, if you will. And the stump that is left is shackled, so it will never grow again to the size and the greatness that it was. And that's the interpretation. That's the prophecy. And it's about Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of that, Nebuchadnezzar is told um, that you will be driven from men and that you will have seven times of a period of time that is defined as seven, seven something, seven units of time. That you will be driven from men and you will live like a beast of the earth. And you will be humbled so that you can know that you are a king and you're a great king. But God is the king over all kings. That's the lesson he has to learn. Now that's the prophecy. That's the interpretation of the prophecy. And then fast forward one year later. To quote Spongebob Squarepants. One year later, Nebuchadnezzar is just strolling along in his, in his castle. Minding his own business. Believing he's the bee's knees. Forgot all about that prophecy. And thinking to himself. Not even saying the words. Just thinking to himself, aren't I just the best? And isn't this kingdom of mine just the greatest? And isn't it all because of me, me, me? And then, verse 32, or actually, let's back up just to get the complete sentence. Verse 31, while those thoughts were in the king's mouth before he spoke them, right? God who can hear your thoughts. While the word was still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, your kingdom is departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, 32. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you will be eating grass like the oxen till seven times pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men 
and gives it to whomsoever he will. Those words are the exact words that Nebuchadnezzar heard in his dream, heard repeated in the interpretation, and now are seeing come to fruition. And we ended last week by just noting how surreal and intimidating, for lack of a better word, that is for, in any circumstance. If anybody ever had a dream where anybody spoke some words to them and then later those exact words are said in reality, wake from the dream, you're awake, you would be freaked out. And imagine that, not just from some guy, but from a giant booming voice in the sky, an angel of God come to do this and remind you of this prophecy of doom that's about you. And so it just, it just, it's just funny to me because Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't even need the interpretation because he's told here what Daniel told him in the interpretation. Like he didn't need to know that he was the tree. He didn't need to know what all those things represented. All he needed was just to be told this dream means you're going to be driven from men and forced to live like an animal for a period of seven units, whatever that may be, until you're humbled and you learn that God is in control. Well, fine. He doesn't need Daniel to tell him that because he's going to literally hear it in his waking moment from the angel himself that he dreamed about, which is just, again, I cannot emphasize it enough just how intimidating that had to have been. So, verse 33. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men and did eat grass as the oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till the hairs were grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws or talons. There's a little minor discrepancy um, between the uh, Hebrew text from which this translation, all of our translations are derived, and the LXX, the Septuagint, which is the official Greek translation of the Old Testament that the rabbis used in Jesus' day, that Jesus himself used, and so forth. The LXX, in its translation of this, it treats verse 33, as we would call it, uh, as part of the same quotation from the angel's words in verse 32. In other words, the angel in 31. In 31 and 32 and 33, it's all the angel speaking and telling Nebuchadnezzar that this is it, this is, it's happening, big guy, judgment day is here. And you're going to be driven from men, verse 32, and you're going to eat grass like the oxen until seven times. And then the angel's still speaking, and it's just, it happened, it's just like a little parenthetical, and it happened right then as the angel was speaking. And the angel, as the angel was saying in verse 33, you're going to be driven from men, you're going to eat grass like the oxen, your body's going to be wet with the dew of heaven, your hairs are going to grow like eagle's feathers, and your nails are like, uh, going to be like bird's talons. Which, in other words, the LXX translators, they took the text and they thought it meant the angel is like cursing him and basically sending the punishment to him in that exact moment. Not just giving him another prophecy, someday soon it's going to happen, but rather this is it, boom, it's happening now. And I like that interpretation. I think it works better than just the, the, the more other uh, way that the text is often uh, translated. But that's the translation of the LXX, and that's the way it puts it. But I think it makes, either way it works, because either way it happens to him. But the LXX translators, they believe that's the angel doing it right then. He's sent by God to curse him, and so he's cursed. And so that's what happens to him. That he is driven away, and that he starts to, has anybody, I mentioned this one I taught in VBS, so maybe if you remember, I mentioned it there too. Has anybody ever heard of Boanthropy? Boanthropy. You can Google it, you can look it up, you can watch YouTube videos of it. It is a bizarre, real mental illness. It's not one of those pretend, oh, I killed 70 people, but I was insane for an hour. You know, No, it's an actual legitimate mental illness where the person who is stricken with this disease, the brain scrambles what they think and how they act to believe that they are an ox or a cow or some kind of bovine-like 
animal. You think, well, that's insane. Yeah, it is. That's, that's the clinical definition for it. But it's a legitimate kind of insanity where the person stricken with it just gets on all fours, starts eating grass. I don't know if they actually move, but why wouldn't they if they think they're a cow, right? So they start doing all these things, and it only lasts for a short period of time. It just, I don't know what triggers it. I haven't looked that much into the research of it, but by all means, do your own research. Do your own Googling. But it's a legitimate thing. So there's two possibilities here. One is that either Nebuchadnezzar was afflicted with this, and that explains his condition, why it's just he's described in this way, that you know in that period of time, naturally he would not groom himself, and so his hair would grow long, his nails would grow long, he would act animalistic, he would eat grass and things. Now that's the explanation for it. Or there's a supernatural explanation, which is that God just does it. God just strikes him with it. Now maybe you can you can marry the two. God strikes him with that, but either way, it's a legitimate thing. So it could have been that, but it doesn't have to have been that, because God is capable of doing whatever He wants when He's in a cursing mood. Okay, so don't cross the, the I almost said the dude. That would be disrespectful. Don't cross the God who can turn you into a cow, or at least make you think you're a cow to make you act like a cow. Best not do that. So whether it's boanthropy or just a good old-fashioned uh, miracle, either way, Nebuchadnezzar was cursed. And now we jump from 33 to 34, and we're not given any kind of detailed historical record. We're not told, you know, this is what he did when he was acting like this, or this is what it looked like, this is how the people reacted. We're not given any of that. Because I want you to remember how chapter 4 began. It began with the start of a royal proclamation. It began with Nebuchadnezzar saying, I, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon over the whole known world as far as your old, you plebes are concerned. I hereby give this statement. Here's the testimony about God and all he's done to me so that I can recognize he's so great. It's the start of a royal proclamation. So you get to this point in the proclamation. In fact, if you remember just a few verses ago, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was walking in my garden. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my castle. First person perspective. And then... It shifts to, here's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, the, the stenographer, or whoever, is writing it down and recording the history of it. So now that it's recorded, we jump to the end of it. Verse 34. Look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, we're back to first person. Because well, he's obviously, he's not going to be thinking he's a cow and dictating to Daniel about what it's like to eat grass. So we have to jump to a third person perspective until we're done with that. And now we jump back to first person, 34. So he's still, he's on his throne, he's recording to Daniel to read, to write. I, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes unto heaven, or that is to say to the sky, and my understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that lives forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Now, my Bible, verse 34, begins with the phrase, at the end of the days. What does your Bible say? Uh, period. Your says period. Period. Hmm? Time. In the time, which that's just that's just vague enough to work for anything, right? So again, my Bible says days. Does that mean literally at the end of the days? Because remember, this whole thing is the only unit of measurement we're given for how long this will last is the number seven. In the King James, it's till seven times pass over you. And I have read translate or uh, not translate commentators. I have read scholars who just launched to the presumption that it was seven years. And I don't know where they got years, because there is 
There's no, when you look at the history of Babylon, which is a real place with real people and there's real history, there is no recorded seven year, a big number, seven year gap where Nebuchadnezzar thought he was a cow. Okay, that somebody would have wrote that down other than Daniel in this text and it would have been known. Okay, there's no record of that. But if it was a shorter period of time, easily you can imagine real people in real circumstances in a situation like this, okay, the king has gone a little crazy. Let's make sure this doesn't get out. Can you imagine a world leader being a little crazy and his people around him saying, let's try to hide this? I think it's plausible. I don't know why you're laughing. I think it's plausible in any country of the world in any time period. Okay, Ronald Reagan had the beginning stages of Alzheimer's, and his staff knew it. That's what I was talking about. I don't know who you're talking about. And his staff knew it, and they made sure to protect him and caution him and be careful and handle him in his final couple of years of office. Is it plausible that a world leader like Nebuchadnezzar, who has so much power that he could disappear and just be ruled by proxy, the kingdom ruled by proxy, that he could have had a little period of time where he was a little nuts. His people, his handlers handled him, and everything just went along smoothly until he got over it. Yes. Seven years, though, that's a bit hard to swallow. But all your Bible says is not years, but just times. You're given a unit of time. Now remember, the prophecy of, of, of Daniel, Daniel's book, is apocalyptic. Apocalyptic language has certain kind of uh, patterns. There are certain key buzzwords and phrases and things that just kind of consistently mean the same thing. So that when you spot it's apocalyptic, you can spot these phrases and they work like keys to unlock a puzzle. The number seven in apocalyptic language is used to mean something. And it's not always used to mean one more than six or one less than eight. Seven, when you read in apocalyptic language, who knows what it means? But perfect is not bad, but really a better definition is complete. Now, your King James will conflate perfect and complete. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 5 says, make sure your love is perfect. Well, my love ain't always perfect, Jesus. I'm sorry. He doesn't mean flawless. He means complete. Love your enemy, love your friend. Complete love. But yeah, perfect, that's, that, that's, just, that's too much of a slippery slope. Complete is a more precise way of, of looking at seven. Another number, which will come up in future prophecies of this book, is half of seven. Three and a half. That's half of seven, right? My math is not wrong. I think my math is right. I did not do good in math, but I think that's half. Half of seven is three and a half. Now, what do you reckon if seven means complete that three and a half means? It means incomplete. And when you read about apocalyptic discussions of things that have a wholeness to them, seven is often described. The God is described as the seven spirits. There ain't seven spirits, but there is the complete spirit of God. All right. The punishment that the people of God, we already studied Revelation, but just as a refresher, the punishment the people of God will endure uh, in um, uh, tribulation in Re Revelation 2.10. We always know be faithful unto death. But at the beginning of that verse, you will be tried, you will have tribulation for how many days? In Revelation 2.10. You'll have tribulation 10 days. What's 10? Well, it's not 7, it's not 3 and a half. What's 10, though? It's seven plus three. It is a week and a half. Okay, whenever you have factors like this and they're broken into halves, that's implying incomplete. I don't know why I write on the board. It's implying incomplete. You have a whole and a half of a whole. A whole and a half of a whole. Ten days, right? So you'll have an incomplete period of time. It'll last a long time, but it won't last forever, is what is prophesied in Revelation 2.10. Factors of ten in Revelation and factors of ten in uh, Daniel are often used to describe incomplete factors of seven things that are complete. 
All right, now all Nebuchadnezzar is prophesied about is that he will have uh, this period of suffering for seven units. It is up to God to decide how actually long it will be. It could be seven days. It could have been five days. It could have been 30 minutes. The point is, it would have a period of time until it did its job, until it fulfilled its purpose, until what it was meant to do is completed. Now, what is it meant to do? Why is God doing this? Is it just for kicks and giggles? Why is he striking Nebuchadnezzar like this? What's the answer? Huh? Keep the people from being destroyed. Let them know God's real. Think more. Yeah, you're on the right track. But think more about Nebuchadnezzar himself. Huh? Make him believe in God. To make him believe in God. I'm looking for a word. It starts with H. Ends in humble. Huh? Yes, to humble him. Yes, you're all right. But that's the word I'm thinking of. God is trying to humble Nebuchadnezzar. So when Nebuchadnezzar is humbled, when God thinks, all right, you, you've been in bovine timeout long enough, now you can get out, then he'll get out. In other words, when it's complete, seven is not describing how long in terms of an actual number, one more than six, one less than eight, whether it's seven days, seven months, seven years. That's the wrong way to look at it. Seven means complete. So read it that way. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are going to eat like a, a cow and you're going to have the, eat the dew of the grass and all that stuff until a complete time passes over you. Now, if you read it that way, all God is saying is, you're going to suffer until you're done suffering. That's it. It's not going to be incomplete where you're going to get over it, but you haven't learned the lesson. It's going to be complete. That's the point. All right? So, does Nebuchadnezzar learn the lesson? Well, he wakes up in verse 34. The first thing he does is praise God. And when he, when he fell into this mess, what was, the, what was he doing? What was the last thing he did? Praising him. Praising self. Now he wakes up praising God. I'd say it was complete. I'd say mission accomplished. So, Notice again verse 34. He lifts up his eyes. His understanding returns to him. And the first thing he does, he blesses the Most High. He praises and honors God, the God that lives forever. Remember, he's recording this for Daniel to write down. These are his phrasing. So Daniel, write down that I praise and honor the God who lives forever. That I praise and honor the God whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. Whose kingdom is from generation to generation. You write down that I recognize that the God who punished me is the God who has a kingdom that will never end. Well, where did he learn that language? Way back in chapter 2, decades earlier, right? He remembered what he had conveniently forgotten just before he got punished. Thus the punishment. 35. Oh, he's still talking. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he, God, does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand, none can stop his actions, or say unto him, what doest thou? Let's go back and look at this verse. Again, he's still talking about God. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed or regarded as nothing in comparison to God. All, that includes himself. All are just ants to the mighty power of God. And God does according to his will in the army of heaven. And Nebuchadnezzar who famously bragged about the power of his army and used the power of his army to do terrible things and conquest. Now it says God has his own army and no one's stopping him. And then he says, uh, and none can stay his hand. None can grab God's hand before he strikes it down and overpower him. And the last one I love the most. My Bible says, who can say to him, what doest thou? What's your Bible say? What have you done? Nobody can go to God and say, what is this? What did you do? What did you do? Answer me. Tell, give me an explanation. You don't have the right. God's not your child. You don't have the right to go to God and say, what did you do? Now, if he wants to tell you, look, he'll tell you, okay? But beyond that, you don't get to say, 
what did you, what were you thinking? What were you, what was going through your mind? Well, I'll tell you, he could tell you and you would never even begin to comprehend it because his mind is from before and until forever. But you don't get the right to say, explain yourself. If he wants to, he will. Otherwise, know your role and shut your mouth. Verse 36. To quote the rock. Verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned unto me. And for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me. And my counselors and my lords sought unto me. And I was established in my kingdom. And excellent majesty was added unto me. God says, I'm going to punish you. Now remember the prophecy. Big mighty tree cut down but not uprooted. Big mighty tree cut down and shackled there in a stumped state, in its state as this, this shell of its former self. Nebuchadnezzar is not losing his throne. He's never going to be better than he was at his peak. Okay, He, he, he has peaked, I guess is what I'm trying to say. He has peaked. He's all downhill from here. But it's not like this ordeal that happened to Nebuchadnezzar has destroyed his kingdom, because it hasn't. It's going to keep on rolling past him as we're going to see in the next chapter. But what it's done is it's made him realize that his power is limited, and it's limited by the authority of God, which incidentally is the whole point of this text. So, um, he, he, well, look at the text again. The glory of my kingdom, the brightness of my kingdom, all my counselors and lords, incidentally, you have a king in any other kind of situation who loses his wits and is completely out of his mind. That's the perfect opportunity for a coup d'etat. It's a perfect opportunity for someone to swoop in and take over and install himself as an emperor or as a king in his place. But it doesn't happen here. However long he was out of it, he was out of it and he got to come right back to the throne because that was God's will. Now a child of God might hear this and think, God, you had him right where you wanted him. Why didn't you finish the job? As if God is a boxer, you know, messing around for a few rounds. If God wanted to, he could thump him off the face of existence. That's not his point. His point was to humble him to teach him a lesson, and then put a humbled king back on the throne. Now, how, how, how much good do you think a humbled king could do who humbles himself to God? I'm not saying it's going to stick. History proves it's probably not going to stick with Nebuchadnezzar. But for a limited period of time, you have a humbled king who recognizes the power of God. That's pretty important. That's pretty useful to God. So he doesn't have to explain himself to me, but I can see the thought process of why he wouldn't eliminate Nebuchadnezzar, but would use a humbled Nebuchadnezzar. So, 36 is just telling you, back to business. 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. All his works are truth, he does what he says. All his ways are judgment, what he does is fair. And those who are prideful, those who walk in pride, as he was literally doing, walking with pride in his heart, or the King James says, abased or humble, brought down, um, which he can speak to by personal record. So, you know, you'll have diff discrepancies, you have difference of opinions. Was Nebuchadnezzar, did this, did this convert him? Did this change him? Well, he's not really saying much that he didn't say at the end of chapter 2, and that didn't stick. He's not really saying anything different than he said at the end of chapter 3, and that didn't take either. So I'm hesitant, not to evil surmise, not to assume the worst, but I'm hesitant to say, yeah, this is the one that'll do it. Maybe it will. I've never turned into a cow for, you know, seven times to pass over me. I don't think I needed to be humble before God. But if that's what he needs to do to humble me, maybe it's stuck. I don't know. All I know is, for at least a period of time, he was ready to acknowledge, once again, that God is God. All right, that's Daniel 4. Any comments or questions? He still had to protect his people. You know, to me, that was the whole 
underlying thing here. Jewish people were in in their punishment time. Uh -huh. Didn't want them to be destroyed. Right. Kings didn't care about them. But they had to understand this God that these Jewish people worship is real. Yes. Oh, you know, I think Nebuchadnezzar still thought there's lots of gods out there, but he knew sure. this God right. was the God for sure. He knew the head God maybe or whatever he wanted to think of him as. But he had to protect these people. That was God's overall plan mm -hmm. to bring Christ. You know, it's all about that. Right, yeah, to show that he's greater than all of them. It helps me to understand Daniel as I keep that big picture in my mind of what's, you know, the big thing that's going on here. People are punished 70 years. Right, right. That's all part of the plan. So. Absolutely. Somebody have a hand over here. Bill? Yeah, what happened to him wasn't miraculous. It would have taken a while for his nails to grow. Oh, that's true. That's a good observation. Yeah, that's a good observation. If you didn't hear him, it, it gives you the description. His hair starts growing wild, his nails grow long, and so forth. Well, that takes time to naturally occur that. But if it's a miracle, you know, God jumps to the end. So, yeah, that, that's a very good point. Thank you for that. All right. All right, now jump forward a few pages in your book to chapter 7. Chronologically, here's the next text. So here's your, here's your, um, you know, circle outline. Um, chapter seven is in the same circle as chapter two. If you remember chapter two, which we already covered in chapter two, you have this great big. Yes, it was a dream, as in chapter four, but that's the only commonality. The point was the dream of chapter two was about this great kingdom to come, all these other worldly kingdoms, and then replaced by and supplanted by this great eternal kingdom. The eternal kingdom is really the theme of chapter 2. Well, it so happens is also the theme of chapter 7. So let's see that. In this case, though, it was Nebuchadnezzar who got the dream about the eternal kingdom in chapter 2, and Daniel had to interpret it by the power of God. Here in chapter 7, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't factor in. He doesn't get a dream. Daniel himself gets the dream, and then Daniel is given the interpretation of it. Daniel 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, we've moved forward in time. Daniel had a dream and uh, sorry, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. So it's just like an introductory statement. Here's what you're about to read. I had a dream, blew my mind. I'm going to write it down and record it because it came from God. So the first year of Belshazzar, um, what ought to what, what, what we're going to do this yeah chapter 8 follows this chapter 8 starts I think in the third year of Belshazzar so we're moving forward chronologically but we had to jump forward a few uh, pages um, Belshazzar and Nabonidus were, were ruling uh, over Babylon Nabonidus had left Babylon not like he escaped not like he um, uh, absconded but Nab he left to go to uh, Haran to uh, wage war and while he was gone, Belshazzar uh, ruled in his stead. Um, so we're in that kind of time period. That's just incidental. The point is what's going on. In fact, I, I wouldn't say it's incidental. You have a lot of wars going on right now. You have a lot of turmoil and activity in the kingdom. Anytime a kingdom is in war, even if you're all the way over here and the war's all the way over here, you're hearing about it, you're learning about it. It's a period of uncertainty, anxiety. So it fits in that time period that God is going to remind Daniel and us through Daniel there's a bigger picture. All kinds of wars and things are going to come. Kingdoms are going to come and go. But I have a kingdom that's going to last. And that's the point we're going to learn about here. Verse 2. <clears throat> Daniel spoke and said, this is his writing, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven strove or uh, were restless upon the great sea. Four winds of heaven, cardinal directions, the north wind, south, east, 
and west wind, um, all converging on the Great Sea. I'm going to presume that's all it is, but it, I think it's the Mediterranean Sea. It was typically called that, even though, you know, I'm not going to draw the map. But Babylon's all the way over here, so you got, you know, the Persian Gulf, you got uh, the uh, Tigris and Euphrates and so forth. But from Daniel's perspective, his Great Sea is the Mediterranean because that's his region where he came from. So I think that's what he's talking about. Four winds converge on it, stirs up a great storm. Now, mind you, this is a vision. It's apocalyptic. What you're reading is going to be, as we go through this, it's going to sound very revelation-y, and it's intentional. John was aping uh, Daniel when he wrote Revelation because that's just the style. That's you, you write it that way so the reader will catch on. Oh, this is apocalyptic like Daniel's was apocalyptic. So that's the thematic connection and stylistic connection between Daniel and Revelation. It really comes through here. And you're going to see it in the next few verses. But because it's apocalyptic, you're going to read about a bear, but it's not a bear. You're going to read about an eagle, but it's not an eagle. These things are representational. What's It's like a bear. It's like an eagle and so forth. So if you remember when we had the Revelation class, if you were there, the thing I kept emphasizing, when you study these apocalyptic visions, you have to zoom all the way out. What is the point I'm trying to take from this? What's the big picture point God's teaching me? And then you can slowly zoom in more and more to the parts where we all debate and argue and fight over. And those things, okay, we can argue about them, but let's all agree on the big picture. And at least grasp that. And I think we can do that here as well. Um, four winds, not literally, but what does it represent? Go to the next verse. Four is not the only time four comes up. Four winds, and verse three, four great beasts came up from the sea. So you got four winds that come to the sea and stir up a storm that not coincidentally bring from the storm four beasts. Well, each wind was carrying a beast. It's just, it's the storytelling. It's the once upon a timishness of this. So these four beasts come up from the sea and each one is very different from the other. It's not a coincidence, I don't think. That when Nebuchadnezzar previously had the dream that Daniel interpreted, there were four principal elements to that big statue. There was gold, there was silver, there was bronze, there was iron. Slash clay. Right? Four principal elements. Well, here you have four beasts. Four principal elements. Each one represented a kingdom of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Macedonia, Greece, and Rome. That's a republic or an empire. Four I wonder if that's going to be used here. I wonder if my already knowledge of chapter 2 serves as a key to unlocking the mystery of chapter 7. I say yes. Let's see if it works. Four beasts come up from the sea, and they're all different. Verse 4. The first beast is a lion. Is that what your Bible says? No, it doesn't. It says like a lion. Yeah. It's not exactly a lion. It's like a lion because I don't know any lions that have eagle's wings, but this one does. So it's like a lion and had eagle's wings. And I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked and it was lifted from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man and a man's heart was given to it. Very vivid, surreal. That's the word I always go back to with apocalyptic. Surreal, dreamlike kind of vision. So it's not a lion, but it's like a lion. But it has the wings of an eagle that are soon plucked, forcing it to stand on its feet like a man and then a man's heart is given to it. And if you can close your eyes and if you can visualize that, I want what you're smoking because I can't visualize that. That's something wild and, and, and fancy free. Um, why does Daniel compare it to a lion? Maybe strength. Maybe power. Why is it an eagle? Well, eagles, eagles are predatory. Very, very much so. They're also known for their swiftness. I think that might imply the wings part of it. The way they swoop down. You ever see an eagle go after you know, fish in the water? for their swiftness and how they swoop down to catch their prey. Um, 
it's, I think it's telling that this beast with its ferocious and mighty wings, its wings are clipped and it's forced to stand like a man, humbled, perhaps even in that sense, to stand like a man and have the heart of a man as opposed to having the heart of an eagle or the heart of a lion and as the heart of a man. So this is a lion that's reduced in strength. This is an eagle that's reduced in its swiftness. This is a, a ferocious thing that is humbled. Now, in the chronology of Daniel, we just read about a ferocious thing that is humbled. Did we not? I know it was a tree in that vision, but the idea was here's this mighty thing that its, its legs are proverbially chopped out from under it. Here's this mighty thing that is reduced in its stature. Well, here is this mighty thing that is reduced. And I've already been given chapter 2, and what I'm doing right now is I'm walking you through my thought process, my insane mind, and how I figure this kind of stuff out. Because I take all these disparate elements and I say, now do they fit in the puzzle? Can I turn the pieces and if they fit, it works. If it doesn't, I'll keep spinning it until it does. I'll find a different explanation. But I think it all fits like this. You've got this ferocious thing that is humbled. Well, that reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. Does it fit with Nebuchadnezzar? Well, you've also got in chapter 2, you've got the four elements, the first of which was Babylon. That one's already given for me. That's, the, that's unlocked for me. That's the Rosetta Stone. Because in Daniel 2, he says to the king, you are the golden head, and after you will come another kingdom. So I know Babylon is the first of those four elements. Well, if these four are those four, then Babylon is the first of those four. And if Babylon is the first, and this thing is humbled, Babylon was humbled, boy, it just seems like this is Babylon. Does that make sense? That's how I figure that out in my head. All right. Maybe there's an easier way. I didn't look at the back of the book. It'd be great if the Bible had that in the back of the book, like in Matthew. But it doesn't because I've checked. All right. So, verse 5. Next beast. Like a bear, not a bear, but like a bear. And it raised itself upon one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, the King James says they, but it really should be, it was said to it, arise and devour much flesh. Give me somebody your verse 5. Yeah. Go ahead, Frank. Now, and behold, another beast is like one like a bear raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, mm -hmm. and it was told. Arise, devour much flesh. Yeah, the King James, I don't know what those guys were thinking in 1611, because they said, they said unto it, which just automatically, I just fixate on that pronoun, and I think, who, who's talking? Who's the they? Is it God? Are they thinking of the Godhead as a three-part being? I don't know. I don't, I don't have their notes on what they, what they thought. I bet I could find that somewhere, but who has the time? But it, it doesn't matter, because it's not a good translation. It, as Frank's Bible says, is the right translation. These words were said to this beast. And what does it say? Arise and devour much flesh. So here is this creature, a, like a bear, large, ferocious, but not the most graceful, not the most swift in its actions. Raises up on one side. You actually, that's a pretty easy image. You can see bears doing that quite often. So probably why he drew that connotation. Um, but remember, based on, I think, it what works out. If the first one is Babylon, and if chapter 2 is my key to unlocking this, if Babylon was the first in chapter two, and it's the first here, what was the what was the second in chapter two? Medo-Persia Medo was the second empire mentioned. So I don't have confirmation yet, but what I've got is a puzzle piece I can try to stick there. Does it fit? If it doesn't, I got to spin it and try something else. I'll start over. But I've got an idea now. I can place it here. Does Medo-Persia work here? Um, you have this thing that slowly moves like a bear. You know, I know bears can be fast, but it's not the most graceful of creatures. So you have this big creature that takes its time rising to power. It, it is 
It is already in the midst of devouring, and it's got more devouring to do. How do I know it's in the midst of, of consuming? It's already got three ribs in his mouth, and God, the voice, says, and you ain't done yet. It just so happens Medo-Persia wasn't always Medo-Persia. It used to be the Medes and the Persians, and they were their own little thing. And then they got together, and they started slowly consuming and conquering until they were big enough to be considered even a, 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 a huge empire, and then expanded and grew from there. So this piece is told, arise and devour, as they will do. Already, by the time Cyrus the Great of Persia, who ruled over that empire in its most powerful state, by the time he came to power, Medo-Persia, the Medes and the Persians were already getting along really well. They were already powerful. They were kind of diplomatically aligned, but they weren't like where the Persians would completely consume the Medes and keep the name like like a you know 501 you know K thing would do. It's like here's this mighty kingdom, here's this other mighty kingdom, and they're aligned politically. So politically aligned, they go together and they conquer until eventually one gets bigger than the other. So you already have conquest going on by the time God says, now conquer some more. Now if I have the idea this is Medo Persia, that just, that just fits like hand in glove. That just makes sense to me. So God is saying, arise this beast. Now arise this beast. Look at verse 6. And after this I beheld, and here's another one, like a leopard which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl, bird, your Bible says, I'm sure, a beast also which had four heads, and dominion was given unto it. First, go back to chapter 2. Here's our key. If chapter 2 is four parts, one is Babylon, two is Medo-Persia, what was the third? Who remembers? Alexander. Yes, Alexander and the Macedonian Empire. Greece, basically, right? All right, that's my puzzle piece. Can I stick it here and does it fit? And man! Does it fit? So much easier than the previous one. But here's what's great about that. If you've ever done a puzzle, you know, and you got the piece that looks like this, and you got the piece that looks like this, well, it doesn't take much to figure out what kind of piece you're missing, right? So this one, Babylon, clearly. This one, I'm going to show you in a second. Clearly, Greece, Macedonia, Alexander. Well, this is the one. It's not as clean cut, but I think it's Medo-Persia. And if this one's Babylon and this one's Greece, this one is Medo-Persia. Because now we are in chapter 2 all over again. It just That's just what makes sense. So Because God, God is not trying to confuse me, right? God is trying to make this just cryptic enough to be apocalyptic, but clear enough to be interpreted and understood. So obviously, this Super Mario thumbs up is Babylon. And this little dude here is going to be Medo-Persia. So I'm going to know by process of elimination that this one is. Oh, uh, Greece, that this one is. Medo-Persia. Because look at what he says. It is like a leopard. What do you know about leopards? What's the one word? They're fast. They're fast. Swift. Quick. What they do is fast. Alright? Macedonia, Alexander the Great. Fast conquest. I mean, he was barely 30 when he wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. He took over fast and burning the candle at both ends, he went out fast. And his kingdom went out fast. What happened to the Macedonian Empire after Alexander died? What happened to it? How many generals? Four. Four generals. And out of the back of its wings, how many wings did it have? Four wings. How many heads did it have? Four. Mm. Mm. And dominion was given to it. Well, I think that's the same phrase as in the previous verse. Go eat more. It's just another way of phrasing it. This is God, this is God who rules saying, go consume. Go rule. I give you my permission by divine right to take over. Well, Nebuchadnezzar does, and those who follow in Babylon. Medo-Persia does, Cyrus, and so forth. We'll get back to them later. Alexander is going to, and those who come after will rule. In a lesser way, but will rule. Verse 7. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, 
dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces, and it stamped the residue with the feet of it. Residue is another word. It stamped what, were, what remained. So it's doing all this fighting, and it just stomps on the ashes of what was burned down. It stomps on the guts of what had been killed, the residue of it. Um, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. We'll get to that in a second. If this is Babylon, and we can now put this puzzle piece here, I think, by process of elimination. This is Medo-Persia. So here's Babylon. Here's Medo-Persia. We know this is Greece, Macedonia. Well, there's a piece we're missing. Well, we know from chapter 2, here's the golden head. Here's the chest and arms of silver. Here's the thighs of brass. What are the legs of? And who does that represent? But now if you listen to the wackos on the Trinity Broadcasting Company, if you go to Compass Church or some crazy Baptist place like that, they're going to give you, this one's ba uh, Baptist, this one's Babylon. They're going to give you, this is Medo-Persia. They're going to give you, this is uh, Macedonia. They're going to say, and this is the United States of America. Or they're going to say, and this is Israel of the modern day. Or they're going to say, this is the Soviet Union back then. Or they're going to say, well, this is China. Or, and they're all Southern, I don't know what. Um, so they're going to they're gonna somehow, very logically, very logically go from this kingdom which was conquered by this one to this kingdom which was conquered by this one to all the way, thousands of years later, to what just coincidentally happens to be the modern age until the modern age changes, and then it'll be, actually, we met this one because it's no longer the Soviet Union. So no, actually, it was Russia all along. You know, like Scooby-Doo. It was Russia all along. No, it's always, you know, the, the scale keeps sliding because, because they got it wrong. The prophecy is going to have an end point. You know how I know this prophecy is an end point? Because this is not the most important kingdom. It's the kingdom of the Lord that we're going to mention. This one is here and here and here, and then boom, it stops. And then comes God's kingdom, which will never stop. So quit trying to put this in the modern era and put it in a time period where there was a kingdom but is no more. Because that's Daniel's point. But these wackos who just want your money so they can buy another jet will tell you anything about the modern day to scare you into cutting them a check and calling their 900 hotline. So again, listen. Here's this fourth beast. If this is Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, yeah, rocket surgery. It's not, it's not hard. This is Rome. After this, I saw a dreadful and terrible and strong exceeding beast, creature. Not really described with an animal um, you know, uh, reference. But it has great iron teeth. Hang on. This is... This was a head of gold. Okay, This was a chest and arms of silver. This was uh, thighs of brass. What was this one? What, what was it? I know Clay, but what, what was the other one? What was he saying? Yes, what kind of teeth? Of all teeth. Of all teeth. Does your Bible say iron? Someone say no? Everybody's Bible say iron teeth? I mean, yeah. it's, he's, he, your, God is not trying to confuse you. He's laying it out there, making it so that you can you can see the connections and go, oh, this is that. Iron teeth. Iron, Rome. It devoured and broke in pieces that which it ate, and it stamped on the remains as it was not. I mean, imagine like an animal. It puts a paw on the ground, bites this is his teeth, paw on the ground, bites, rips it up, and it's just stomped on the animal as it's eating it. That's the image you're getting. And this one is different from all the other beasts that were before it. In various ways, in one way, it has ten horns. Well, if we've already deduced that this is Rome, now here's where it gets <laughs> wild and, and, and crazy. Oh, shucks. Well, maybe next week. 
Now I got five minutes. You got ten horns. And, it, and there's not just ten horns, because as you're going to see, there's ten horns, and then there's a little horn, and there's three horns that lead up to the little horn. So you're being invited, okay, by prophecy. You're being invited to count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And the tenth horn is going to have a little horn that's going to be connected to the previous three. Now, remember what I said about when you get numbers in apocalyptic language, numbers don't mean numbers. Yeah, well, forget that because it's different here. And I'll tell you why. Because here you're invited to count along. Okay? So it's specifically numerated for you because, as we're going to get to in the next few verses, you have a horn that leads to another horn that's connected to three previous horns. So 10 can't be a single thing to look at. It has to be 10 individual things. Otherwise, I can't count three before and one after. So every rule has an exception. Exception. Okay? But if I'm looking at Rome and I'm trying to find where do I get 10 of something in Rome, Rome's first 10 Caesars, Kaisers, Kings are Pompey, Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, Galba, Otho, Vitellius. I have it written down. That's, that's them. Trust me. I, I Googled it. All right. Those are the first 10 rulers of Rome. This beast has 10 horns. Now, there were more rulers after Vitellius. So why are you stopping at 10? Well, keep going. Verse number 8. I consider the horns, and behold, there came up from among them a little horn, before whom were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. So you're being invited to look at not a block of ten, but ten individuals, with one coming out of it, and then three plucked up from its roots. Okay? So you're being invited to look at them specifically. Does that make sense? You follow that logic? All right. Not a unit, individual. So again, I looked at all the horns, and then I saw a little horn. So what's the little horn? Well, if I'm counting up, and this is Vitellius, who is the ruler that came after Vitellius? It's Vespasian. Vespasian, who happened to be, of all of them, arguably the greatest emperor of the Roman Empire. All right? The others would disagree, but that's their business. He didn't get a play. Julius Caesar got the play. But he was not the greatest. He was the first true emperor. We'll get back to him. But uh, Vespasian was arguably the greatest and certainly the most punishing of the Jewish people. And this little horn is going to be described for you in this text as a great punisher of God's people. So pieces are starting to fall into place that this is maybe Vespasian. The problem, the fly in that ointment is, if this is Vespasian, the arguably greatest emperor in Rome, why is he called the little horn? Shouldn't he be the bigger horn? And that's where you get into how, how specific am I supposed to take these images? What, is, what does Daniel even mean when he says little horn? Little could just mean there are ten horns like antlers and there's a horn below. That could be interpreted as little or translated as little. It could be no bigger or smaller than the other. It's just in a different position that he phrased it that way. There's a lot of different ways to interpret little. But I've, I've read commentators who will say, well, it can't be Vespasian because he wouldn't be considered a little horn. Well, if it's not, then who is it? Maybe the emperor after Vespasian who was Titus, another persecutor of God's people. Titus, in the year 70 A.D., we're, we're all the way in the A.D.s now, uh, in, in 70 A.D., Titus invades Jerusalem, sacks the city, burns it all to the ground because the Jews wouldn't pay their taxes. They kept not paying their taxes, and then finally, you know, they, they got it. So maybe Titus, whose reign was really not spectacular other than, you know, knocking the pesky Jews out of the way, maybe he's the little horn, in which case the three before him are those three. Well, if that's the case, you got to knock off one because that would put Vespasian as the tenth and the little horn that comes after him is Titus. 
Now, if you do that, then the first one is not Claudius? Pompey. The first one will be Julius. And that works. That works. Because Pompey, 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 Pompey was destroyed. Pompey was the dude. Pompey was only one of three rulers of Rome at the time. He was a member of the first triumvirate with Cassius and Julius. Then Julius was sent off to fight, I think the Gauls, I can't remember. And he was basically told, we're taking over without you. Please don't come back lest we kill you. And Julius Caesar marched to the river, and he said, now if I cross this, it's war. What was the river called? The Rubicon. If you cross the Rubicon, you say this is the point of no return. So Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon, wins the Civil War, and becomes the sole emperor, the first. Well, then that would make him the first horn. So if you look at it that way, Vespasian becomes the tenth horn, and Titus becomes the little horn. So there's two completely different ways to look at it. And that's what I mean when I said a minute ago, you can get down to the weeds and you can argue. And, and, and scholars and preachers will like to fight and bicker over these things, and they forget just to zoom out. What's the whole point? The point is, this empire is going to end, and I'm going to see another kingdom which will never end. That's the point we all agree on. Okay? We're going to get there next week. Any last comments or questions? All right. Next week, Daniel 7, verse 9.